Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormor and Strike, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz, and today Lindsay, Pools, and I will be continuing our reread of Troubled Blood, this time for chapters 63 through 65. As always, please be warned that our discussion of Troubled Blood will reference events that occur later in the book, as well as previous books in the series. Can I show you guys real quick what just got delivered to my house about 30 minutes ago? Yeah. Please show us. Da, 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 the Christmas pig. It's adorable. So for all of the listeners today that we are recording this is the day that the Christmas pig came out. And Lindsay's just shown us her copy, which looks beautiful. I can't wait to open it up and look at all the artwork too. Oh, it's so gorgeous. I actually read it this morning. The whole thing. Yeah, you've already teased me about that. <laughs> but I can rate it adorable. The whole book was lovely. I'm excited to read it. So we got a really fun question from Virginia again. She sent us a fun one before. And she sent it a while ago, but we didn't have a chance to read it last time. But I wanted to make sure we did because it's fun. It's so fun. So she says... I've been wondering which characters I'd invite to a dinner party. Let's say eight characters plus you ladies with your guests. Who would you have gathered around your table? And then she says, one of my measuring sticks for success is will strike like the food. So she gives her answer. Robin Strike, Ted, Polworth, Vanessa, Nick, Ilsa, and Una Kennedy. And then for her menu, she says... She figures it needs to be yummy, hearty, and unpretentious. She'd do braised lamb with mashed potatoes and green beans. And then Smitten Kitchens, I want chocolate cake, chocolate cake. Mm. I feel like we need to have separate dinner parties because I have a feeling I'm not going to want to go to yours. (laughs) No, I don't think you are. First of all, Smitten Kitchen is amazing. And my favorite cake I found on her blog, a chocolate cake with a peanut butter cream cheese icing and then a chocolate peanut butter ganache. So let's say that's my dessert. Can I do mine first? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Do yours first. Because I've thought carefully about this and I'm really excited to attend this dinner party. My rationale is I want a rematch. I want a do-over of the Nightmare Dinner Party from Hell, but I want to absolutely destroy those students, you know, as one does. So, first of all, Robin is not going to have to suffer through this party. I'm sending Robin for a spa day. She's out having, you know, living her best life. So, my first three guests are, of course, the students, Kyle, Courtney, and Jonathan. I am somehow persuading them to come back. I might have to kidnap them. I don't know if they'd be willing, but okay. Cameron, obviously, because he and I are teaming up here. Max is still hosting because I really want to taste his beef casserole and cheesecake. So Max is cooking at your dinner? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, of course he is. He likes to cook. He wants to be social. I'll do an appetizer. I'll make a charcuterie board. I don't know. Then my last three guests. The first one is Ilsa because she's a lawyer and probably really good at arguing. And I feel like she'd back up Cormoran and I. The second one is Barkley because he's hilarious and I love him. I feel like he would sort of lighten the tone, throw in some jokes, you know. And the last one's Pat, (laughs) just for the reason that I think she'd be hilarious and probably snipe at everybody, chain smoke through dinner, just be incredibly entertaining. So we're redoing this whole debate but it's, it's a sober. dinner party. So a dinner debate. And yes, we're all sober. So it's okay. a it's a dinner debate, if you will. Well, that sounds terrible. Ah, well, maybe so. sounds like a train wreck waiting to happen. I know. And I love it. It's going to be so great. If I don't have Kyle storming out and Courtney sobbing by the time the dinner's done, then what am I even doing? Sometimes we have to suffer through embarrassment and crying in order to grow as people. That's what I want for Courtney. 
but not Kyle. He storms out and then gets hit by a bus. Yikes. <laughs> Oops. Wow. Now I sound like a psychopath, but okay. That's my ideal dinner party. Yeah. What about you, Ken's? Oh, are we going to save your long list for last then? It's not really a long list. I just put it separately. Cormoran and Seven of Cormoran's clones. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's not what I put. Go ahead, Ken's. Damn it. I wish I'd thought of that. So my guest list, because I'm not looking to have a nightmare dinner. <laughs> this one might be potentially awkward. I don't think so, but I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I just looked at your guest list. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. I'm like, oh, no, that's not going to be awkward at all. Yeah, I want to hear your reasoning here. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm okay. very curious. So the people I'd have on my guest list are Vanessa, Barkley, Robin, Strike, Ilsa, Max, Izzy Chisel and Kiara Porter. Why? I was with you up till Max. That seemed fun. Yeah, well, I liked Izzy. And I think it would be funny to see her around Strike because I know she has a thing for him. And also Kiara, she's funny and she's smart. And I think that she would be cool around Strike. I don't think it would be awkward between the two of them. Maybe for Robin. Yeah, poor Robin. Just invite Charlotte while you're at it. And you know what? I almost put that on no there. lie. Best dinner party. Robin Ellen. Strike, every woman Strike slept with. I think it would be fun. I don't know which one I don't want to go to more. <laughs> let's invite well, Let's invite Marguerite from Silkworm too. <laughs> Just for funsies. But this is a dinner party that Lucy's in charge of. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I'll distract the, you know, awkward parts and I'll just, I'll talk to them. I'll leave everybody else to mingle by themselves. I'll mitigate the awkwardness. Yeah. Okay. What about your food? Probably go with whatever I might make for myself, which might be, I don't know, like steak, mashed potatoes, Well, we know he wine. likes that. That is the least objectionable part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> whether it's fried, mashed, I don't really think he cares. <laughs> Half a cow and a full field of potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But Lens, you have an interesting list. It's definitely not interesting compared to both of you. <laughs> <laughs> we are messy benches who love drama, apparently. <laughs> exactly. Hers is going to be the most harmonious dinner party. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't want to cook, probably like order food from my favorite restaurant, but I would want to show off a little and make some cakes. Nice. You'd probably make a gorgeous cake. I would definitely do a chocolate one for Robin. Mm -hmm. And I use the Hershey's chocolate recipe, but dark cocoa powder instead because it's delicious. But yeah, I'd probably want to show off and do a couple. Would you do a fruit cake? No, I would need to convert him. I'd probably do the <laughs> banana cream pie cake because it's amazing. And it's not my recipe, so I can say that. Mm. I like to think that Strike would like my cakes and that he would say something the way he did to Cynthia. When I read that, I was like, I want that. Oh my God. I want him to say that about my cakes. Yeah. I love it. That's so wholesome. So who are you inviting? Okay. So obviously Strike and Robin. I would want Ted because mm. I'm very interested in seeing how Ted and Robin will one day interact. I love the idea of him telling stories about Strike and Robin just kind of being enthralled with that. And I also very much like the idea of her seeing him and thinking that they look alike. Yeah, that's cute. That's cute. And I want it. I'd also want Jack there because I love having kids around and I think he's adorable and he can hang out with my Jack and they could be buddies. That's very cute. Okay. Then the two people who I really, really want to see interact with Strike and Robin, and I hope that we get this one day in canon, well, some more of it, is Steven and Jenny because I loved them meeting Strike at the wedding. And I just think there's a really good potential relationship there between between these um future in-laws so <laughs> i'm dying to see them get to know each other 
and Max too, because I think that Max Strike and Steven would all get along really well and have fun together. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to your dinner party instead. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I'd want lots of margaritas and some sort of game. Your dinner party is wholesome AF, pleasant, easygoing, probably over by 930. <laughs> I'm guessing. Wow. Thanks. You know, we just want different things from dinner parties. You want a nice time. And you want just a little bit of awkwardness. Drama. No, but that actually does sound like a dinner party I would want to attend. That's very cute. That is a fun question. Thank you, Virginia. Can we ask everyone to tweet your dinner parties to us? Because I'm really curious about what other combinations we can come up to. And which one would you attend? Yes, which one of ours is the best? Well, your personal favorite. They're all equally great. In different ways. <laughs> very different ways. I like that we all have very different answers. It's fun. I like that too. That's fun. Okay. Should we go into 63? Let's do it. To summarize the chapter, so we're wrapping up these last few cases. Robin is uh, meeting with Shifty's PA Gemma at the Ventry. Strike finds Southwaite and gets permission to interview Creed. So the epigraph for this one, at last resolving forward still to fare, till that some end they find or in or out, that path they take that beaten seemed most bare and like to lead the labyrinth about. Yeah, so this epigraph, I think it's Strike admitting that he's still investigating the Bambro case. And it's kind of like they want to find answers, but the more they look, the more questions they find. It's like the path seems like they're not going to find anything, but they're still charging forward to some end. They need to find a conclusion in this case. The opening paragraph of this chapter makes me smile every time I read it. Yeah. I love everything about it. Robin noticing that the Schmidt book and pieces of the Bambro file keep moving around the office mysteriously. It is really sweet. She's so observant. (laughs) I mean, I guess she's a detective. I love that after an entire year of wanting nothing to do with this notebook, all of a sudden, now he's interested. That is funny. Why does he now think that he's going to find the answer in Astrology 14 when he hasn't at all? Is it just his last hope? Is it sort of that path that seems bare? The end of the last chapter, he was looking at Talbot's notebook page, right? Yeah. And thinking that maybe there's something there he didn't realize. I just answered my own question. But yeah, I too love that she notices these little things. And I find it sweet because I imagine that she finds this endearing, you know, endearing that he's not giving up and also just knowing (laughs) how much he dislikes Talbot's notebook in general probably (laughs) makes her smile thinking about him reading it. I bet she can picture his face reading it perfectly and it just makes her laugh because we can all picture his face reading it and it's funny. (laughs) I like the little reminder here when she finds the book on strikes half of the desk. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just a cute little reminder that they share a desk now and that they split it into halves. And I know it's really weird of me, but it feels like, like work domestic. It's not that weird. So the agency is busy again. And that is exciting because we start to hear more about this famous footballer. Yeah, I'm wondering if this will be a side case in the next book, like two times. I think it's kind of an interesting potential side case. And I also want to hear Barkley call him dopey again. And I like (laughs) that it says he was unsympathetic. I just feel like Barkley would be really funny reading about that. I feel like they should let Barkley come up with all of the nicknames because I feel like we'd get better ones than Miss Smith and Miss Jones. Like, Robin, you're great, but... Come on, come up with some funny nicknames, right? She's trying to be kind. Yeah. It would be hilarious. I guess whether or not we see him again depends on 
where book six starts, right? Oh, the thing I want to know the most. <sighs> I know. So if there isn't a big time jump, then yeah, maybe they're still working on this case. Mm-hmm. But in any case, it's, I think it's great that they're getting a footballer. It feels like they're breaking into a new market because they're going to get a different word of mouth from a sporting fixture kind of rich. Because yeah. that's like the celebrity world versus the city finance world, right? A different pool of customers that I think might have more interesting cases. Although now that I hear famous footballer, I'm just thinking of Ted Lasso. <laughs> yeah. Their next client is Roy Kent. <laughs> oh my God, it would be Roy Kent. Didn't his girlfriend steal his watch or something? He would never. God, could you imagine that'd be a competition to see who could be hairier and grumpier? <laughs> That's a competition I want to see very much. It seems like they're really respected as an agency that, you know, not only people, they're willing to be put on a waiting list instead of going to another PI, but their one-time surveillance target, SB, is now seeking their help. He's just walking in and off the street, which must have been a bit of a surprise. Carmen was <laughs> yeah. like, uh, well, I'm sorry, I don't have any baby food on me. <laughs> <laughs> my God. The babysitting agency's down the street, my bud. <laughs> No, but seriously, I mean, SB coming to them, I'm going to give some major props to Barkley. Mm. He mm. must have shown a lot of kindness and empathy after talking to him and Eleanor Dean to make SB feel safe and comfortable to come to them, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know. Am I making something out of nothing or does Barkley get some props here? I'm basically the president of the Sam Barkley fan club. I adore him. <laughs> so yes, he gets every single prop, all the props. He's clearly intelligent and he's clearly very good at the work. And he has the people skills, so he's a full package, but he's not arrogant about it. And he's also comfortable working under Robin's authority, and he's hilarious. Yeah. So it's totally thanks to him and Robin's genius that they got a satisfying conclusion. Yeah, I don't think he gets enough credit for being a great detective, and it's just natural for him. Kind of like with Robin. Yeah. Strike saw the talent in both of them, really. So SB walks in, and I love the way that, completely unprompted, he just refers to Shifty as a shifty bastard. He can't have known that that was their code word. This guy is just so shifty that it's the first word that pops into everyone's head. We find out that SB was forced into early retirement, but instead of finding it depressing, he finds it liberating. Man, if I could retire early to live on my millions, I too would find it very liberating and very nice. Mind you, I wouldn't spend my time wearing diapers and eating baby food for another, well, many decades, (laughs) hopefully. (laughs) I would have other things to do. I'd maybe take up gardening or something. Is this whole diaper thing like an all the time thing? Is he standing in the office wearing one right now while talking to Strike? Or is it like just when he goes to Eleanor's? I need to know in order to have the full picture of what's going on. I feel like if he was, there would have been some mention of it in the description of him. Like his pants bulged weirdly around the ass. (laughs) Or you can hear it when, when he walks. Yeah, there would be dead giveaways, I feel like. In my reading, what I've read, fetishes tend to escalate and tend to become consuming. When you feed them, they get stronger and they take up more time and more energy and And when you feed them baby food? (laughs) Yeah. If he wasn't wearing one full-time before, I could see him starting at some point now that he has nothing else to do. Yeah, well, he is liberated. Yeah, he feels liberated, so I can see him doing this more and more. And he's not that afraid of it getting out anymore because his wife knows and is hanging on to that black card. 
well, things are so busy at the agency that Strike and Robin are not able to see each other properly. For I said nearly a month, Lindsay corrected me. It's actually the rest of the month, but who knows? It could be a month. It could be slightly less than that. But in any case, they haven't seen each other in a while. Too long. Yeah, too long. And that leads into blue dress mention number one. And the, the passage goes, Pat, who was listening to the radio while paying a slew of bills, offered to turn it off on seeing Strike, whose attention had just been caught by the figure-hugging blue dress Robin was wearing. Yeah, it was. I love the introduction of this blue dress. So we have this, it's not really a clue, it's it's just kind of a convenient little lyrical aside here. The bit about where's your mama gone? I can't remember who. The song is called Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap by Middle of the Road. Yeah, it's a little bit of an earworm, which is why I listened to it once mm-hmm. and then never listened to it again because I knew that it was going to annoy the piss out of me if I continued to listen to it. But I think it's always really interesting how they use music in the background of these, of these books, but especially in Troubled Blood. But I just wondered if you guys had any thoughts about the placement i had to search for this song on youtube because i'm not familiar with it it's weird because it's an upbeat song but it's actually quite sad if you just look at the lyrics where's your mama gone where's your papa gone it mostly makes me think of anna but it also does make me think of cormoran so it's possible the significance is mostly about anna but maybe it's also about the connection between them so the little boy who never knew where his father was and oftentimes his mother is now helping Anna, who as a little girl didn't know where her mother had gone and still doesn't. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe J.K. Rowling just liked the song, but really the lyric, where's your mama gone is written in the book right before Robin says, you're still working on Bambro, aren't you? So I think it's probably put there on purpose to remind us that Anna is still missing her mother 40 years later. I absolutely agree. And to sort of remind us why they're going on. Yeah, I like that. But what I like more about this music is Pat trying to turn it off. We were talking about this and we're like, so why does Pat offer to turn it off? And you thought... Is it because Strike has been grumpy about it in the past? Like, oh, I want to hear that music. That's my Strike voice. The young people's music. That's a couple decades older. Yeah, I think that's possible. Like if he was real hungover one morning and the music was not kind to his head. But, you know, it could also be more evidence that Pat, too, is trying to be friendlier, trying to be considerate of others in the office while particularly strike. Yeah, I've done that before in office settings. If someone comes around or comes in the office, turn the music down or off. So, yeah. Just both of them trying to be nicer. Yeah. Which is Which is nice. But then they get back to the case. Strike admits that he's still looking over the Bembro case. And I I think that's really endearing. As he's admitting it, he asks Robin why she's looking so pleased. So I think that I'm (laughs) right that Robin did find that endearing. Definitely. You know what else I think she'd like? What? This next line. (laughs) (laughs) If only she, if she could hear his thoughts. If she knew. He glanced at her and then frowning looked away. She was looking particularly sexy in that blue dress, which he'd never seen before. Particularly sexy. Like, she always looks sexy. Not just normal sexy, yeah. Not normal Robin's, like, particularly sexy. (laughs) If I remember correctly, I think my jaw was, like, on the floor when I read this. I was so happy and excited that we got to see this thought. Mm -hmm. I know he's thought it before, but this feels different somehow. I wonder why. Because usually he doesn't think it when he's looking right at her. He just sort of remembers. Mm -hmm. He's thinking about her in general. Acknowledges, yes, she's a sexy girl. Yeah. But this is, we see it in the action, as it were. Real time. And he's like, "Uh oh, I cannot look. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's almost just like with the green dress, he looks away. Yeah, he looks away. He can't look at her because she's too sexy. Bless him. We've mentioned before how Robin is taking Charlotte's place. And there's a reference of a blue dress of Charlotte's that used to be his favorite in Silkworm that she wore during the party after the Anstis' son's Timothy's christening. He remembered it vividly, his favorite peacock blue raft dress, which had clung to every inch of her perfect figure. Yeah, that's a great find. I know I'm jumping ahead and I'm sorry, not really, but I need to know if he compliments her dress at the Ritz. I mean, he probably wouldn't use the same word, but you look nice would make me very happy. He's gonna listen. He's gonna. I just want to know what shade of blue the dress is because I'm a big weirdo. So peacock blue was Charlotte's. What shade is Robin? It says bright, doesn't it, at some point? Yes, but there's a lot of bright blues. So it's not navy. So that's good to know. Anyway, back to things that they're saying out loud. But the things that they say in their heads are so much more interesting. I know. Strike says that he would drop Bambara if he could talk to Douthwaite, Gloria Conti, or Creed. And I think that it's really funny that he says that he really wants to speak to these three people and then he gets to. He's visualizing. He's putting his wish into the universe. Strike has a vision board. Yeah, mm-hmm. a vision board with it. pictures of suspects. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> Manifesting. That's what I was looking for. He is manifesting his dreams and his goals into the universe. So does that mean he needs to start photoshopping like him and Robin together into pictures and putting it on a vision board? I'm sure Lucy and Ilsa have vision boards with that exact thing. They have a shared (laughs) Pinterest with a little photoshopped Carmen Robin wedding pictures and shit. I want them to invite me because I could add some. That would be great. But yes, it makes perfect sense that he feels this way. These are the three huge missing pieces of their puzzle and it's got to drive both of them crazy yeah to just not be able to find or talk to one i laugh at him calling doothwaite he calls doothwaite bloody fishy because doothwaite's a pisces but, um, <laughs> he's a fish robin laughs at that before she says ha ha what was it about pisces though yeah in chapter 26 doothwaite seems pretty bloody fishy to me as well ha ha said robin strike looked blank pisces she reminded him <laughs> Okay, you'd think you'd have learned after that to not say the exact same thing accidentally, (laughs) but I guess she lets it pass this time. Anyway, going back to the missing links, missing pieces of the puzzle. Robin felt a little skip of excitement. She'd received an email earlier telling her to expect a decision by the end of the day on whether or not Creed could be re-interviewed. I'm so excited for her at this point, just knowing the answer that she's going to receive, just I'd be so anxious. I'm really impressed that she doesn't tell him. I could not have done that. I would have been too excited. I would have told him right away. Well, she doesn't want him to get his hopes up in case it fails, right? Still, that's a big secret, an exciting secret. Yeah, it is. She just wanted the reaction when she dropped the, by the way, I succeeded. She wanted that bam moment. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It's just, I don't think I could have done it. Good for her. I don't think I'd have been able to talk calmly waiting for that email. Like I've waited for important emails, uh, scholarship decisions, and they come out on a specific day. I'm losing my mind, refreshing my email every two minutes. I'm shocked that she's able to function normally and not sit in front of her computer hitting F5. I do that with my Amazon deliveries. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay, me too. Then Robin says, it was nice of you, she added as she reached for the door handle to let Pat keep the radio on. Yeah, well, said Strike with a shrug, trying to be friendly. Aw, that's growth, baby. I just, I love that. It's another way of Strike owning his promise to do better. Yeah, I think it's a really nice moment between Cormoran and Robin too. 
I like that he's making the effort and I like that she's acknowledging it and letting him know she recognizes it. It's healthy communication. And I'm also glad that someone compliments her dress, even though it's just Pat. Someone tells her she looks good, which is important. Yes. Yeah. And it's not gross and sleazy like with Morris. No, it's actually a nice compliment. That's a good color on you. A lot of this book focuses on identity and both with Strike and Robin specifically kind of discovering your true self after hardship. She mentions this dress as being quite old. Do you think this is maybe from before her attack? Could this be another sign that she's becoming who she was always meant to be from prior to the attack? Yeah, I like that. I mean, I think the fact that Strike has never seen it before, but she says that it's old means that she's had it this entire time and never worn it, right? Mm. So did Matthew not like her in it because it's a good color on her? And we know he says he likes her pale. I say with air quotes, I don't actually believe that. He didn't want her in a green dress specifically, just be coming up with excuses. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's very possible. I absolutely believe that Matthew didn't like her wearing anything that made her look particularly sexy when they were out together. He doesn't like her being too tall. I could totally see him not liking her being too sexy or too flashy. Mm -hmm. It seems like something he'd be a bit judgmental over and a bit discouraging of because he's a dick. Sorry. But also Robin is sort of downplaying the compliment with a bit of not overt self-deprecation, but just a little of like, oh, it's old. I eat too much chocolate. It's a bit of sort of self-deprecation to sort of deflect or downplay compliments. And I just see it because I do it constantly. So I just, I see you, Robin. Pat being nice all over the place today. Hey, That's sweet when Pat asks her if she thinks he'd want some tea. It's the start of an oddly beautiful and hilarious friendship. And I can't wait for more of it. Or as one of our listeners called it, a feisty friendship. Yeah, (laughs) I liked that. I wonder if Pat made his tea right. I like to imagine that Pat is also the type to drink super strong tea. Yeah, I think either way, he's still going to be touched because he often feels touched by gifts or acts of service. So yeah, I agree for sure. Okay, Kenz, you brought up the other song. So what do you think the significance of Play That Funky Music is? (laughs) You're funny. I, you know, I don't think that there's any particularly deep purpose there, but I have to say that the mental image of Pat singing along to that song is fucking hysterical and I love it. The lyrics that are quoted are kind of relevant to finding Duthwaite though. It's it's Duthwaite's love of sort of music and performing and taking musicians' names that lets Strike find him, isn't it? So the bit that's quoted, once I was a funky singer playing in a rock and roll band, that's how he finds him. Yes, Robin leaves and she is off to the Ventry. I have to say those decorations at the Ventry are definitely weird. (laughs) Yeah, you can actually see them if you look on Google Maps. You can see the little stuffed animals holding guns. It is a bit weird. So I love the way that Rowling describes this as tasteful beige blandness because it's not a very good advertisement for the Ventry. I don't know if they'd be pleased to have them described that way, (laughs) but it's a pretty accurate and vivid and clear description. Like I know what kind of restaurant she's talking about. One thing I found interesting was I looked at a close-up of the window display. Rowling says that it's stuffed rabbits. It's actually a stuffed rabbit and a fox. Why would you change that? Or is it just an error? Because the fox and the rabbit, kind of like Gemma and Morris, because she thought that he was a nice guy. And no, he was a jerk fox. Nick Wilde would not like this characterization. (laughs) No, he wouldn't. I'm sorry. I liked the place. I liked all the plants they have hanging from the ceilings and the walls. I mean, I'd probably go there. I'm quite pretentious and the food looked very tasty, but it is a good description. 
Yeah, it's a funny description. Robin sits at the bar and she gets appreciative glances from the men at the bar and avoids them. (laughs) Just like in chapter 73 in the same dress. Just saying. Oh, well, it's a nice color on her. And she looks particularly sexy. So, you know. Particularly sexy. Yes. It's just kind of funny that she ignores all these men who are actually looking at her. But the one man who she'd probably welcome it from looks away. (gasps) Oh, I love that. I didn't think of that. That's beautiful. That's poetry. Do you guys think that she came up with this plan on how to approach Gemma on the spot? Because she said to Cormoran earlier that she was hoping she'd be able to infiltrate somehow. It was a great plan. And I'm always impressed when Robin gets to play a character. I can sort of imagine her brainstorming like a few different approaches beforehand. Mm -hmm. And then like choosing whichever one fits the situation, right? But yeah, Robin absolutely kills it in this scene. One thing I noticed was it was it's funny. She uses her mother's name, Linda, as the person she's supposed to be meeting. And I didn't notice that until just recently. But it, it kind of goes back to the thing Strike once said about when you're undercover, it's a good idea to use names that you connect with or that you respond to, right? So she's being pretty smart here. This quote kind of made me think. She'd subtly broadened her Yorkshire accent, as she often did when pretending to be a bolder, brasher character than she really felt herself to be. Gotta take charge or they'll walk all bloody over you. But I was just thinking about this sort of choosing Yorkshire when she wants to be bolder and brasher. Is it a sign that Robin finds confidence in her sort of roots? That that bolder, brasher character is her connecting with sort of the core of her that she needs help bringing out, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're hitting on something there because her character that she's putting on now doesn't really feel as much of a separate character as, say, Bobby felt like, Bobby Cunliffe and in Mm -hmm. Lisa White. That felt much more like a complete separate person to Robin, but this felt like a natural extension of who she actually is. So I really like that, and I do think that she finds confidence in her roots. And just saying, I think that Strike likes her best when she's being herself, and he does love when her accent comes out. Yeah, he does. <laughs> and I'd like it if you told her so. Yes, big scene. We just have a long wish list going on. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Our wishes slash demands. <laughs> We're not using the word demands, Ken's. No demands. Requests. And we know that Gemma is waiting for someone, but did either of you suspect who it was? I have no idea. I think that I had lost track of it, but once we saw who it was, it was like, we have to see you again. Like, (laughs) damn it. I thought we were done with you. He just walked into the bar wearing a suit, an open necked shirt, and a remarkably smug smile. He glanced around, picked out Gemma and Robin by the bright colors of their dresses and froze. For a second or two, he and Robin simply stared at each other. Then Morris turned abruptly and hurried back out of the bar. What a coward. <laughs> it's so satisfying that he freezes and takes off. That is hilarious. He's scared of her. Of course he is. With good reason. She will destroy him. She already destroyed him once. But seriously, for six months he was using this woman and the whole time he had the information they needed to help the case, but he withheld it in order to continue sleeping with her on the agency's dime. And the fact that he told Gemma not to say anything about what Shifty did. He's such a shit. I can't even with him. He makes me rage. Possibly more than Matthew did. That's saying something. So not only is he behaving totally unacceptably, he's making the agency liable for his bad behavior too. Exactly. He was specifically told not to do exactly what he did. 
and it's rape by deception like he was deceiving her about who he was and what his intentions were i know that a court wouldn't agree but it's absolutely immoral and a disgusting thing to do and what would have happened to the agency if Gemma had found out who he really was and what he was doing with her right yeah so i'm just like thank god that robin broke this walking liabilities nose and sent him on his asshole way i guess i don't have words strong enough for him and i don't want to spend too much time on this but i really do appreciate jk rowling touching on the subject with Gemma. you know we've seen robin being harassed by morris throughout this book but thankfully she has a partner who believes and supports her what Gemma mm-hmm. tells robin in just a few short sentences she's able to explain all of the reasons why a woman might be afraid to report something like this or how her life could just be ruined by something that someone else chose to do to her. Yeah, I feel so bad for Gemma hearing this story mm-hmm. of what her work life with Shifty has been like and what he did to her. It's just so awful. And it happens to women in the workplace all the time, the sexual harassment. And hearing that Andy, with quotation marks, was the first person she slept with since it happened. And she'd confided in him emotionally. She's already hurt by the way he's treated her, by him ghosting her. How much more traumatized and heartbroken would she be if, again, she found out he'd been deceiving her the whole time? Yeah, I'm kind of hoping that she never has to find out. On the one hand, you know, I feel conflicted because I always want women to have the full knowledge of what's going on. But on the other hand, I don't want her to be hurt more than she already is. So I'm conflicted. I'm just really glad that they're able to get rid of Shifty now because, again, Robin's a genius. One last thing, I would have loved to see the conversation where Robin tells Strike about everything that happened Mm. and just how awful Morris was. Yeah. Strike would be so angry and possibly feel a little bit bad too. I would. Yeah, absolutely. Like he would feel partly responsible as well as absolutely furious. Can I say, I kind of do hope we see Morris again, like working for Mitch Patterson solely so that Robin can absolutely destroy him some more. I don't think he's been punished enough. I think he needs to be punished more. I could get behind that. Yeah. I wish that Robin actually could have been friends with and stayed in touch with Gemma because Gemma seems like she needs a good friend. I don't know. Robin's such a good listener and she would have been such a good support for her. Well, hopefully she left an impression. Yeah. But I know she can't have been because Robin is a professional who has proper boundaries and who does her job without deceiving good people too much and trying to keep the harm to a minimum, just like Strike does. Yeah. It did make me a little sad when she's saying goodbye and how she's like, let's go out Saturday. Oh, yeah. I got over it, though, pretty quickly, because what happens next? I'm still not that over it, but okay. Before she even talks to Stryker, looks at her phone, it says, A young man in a suit wolf whistled as she passed. Oh, bugger off, muttered Robin, pulling out her phone to call Strike. I'll try not to elaborate on this too much because I'll save it for our predictions episode. But there are a few instances in this book where Robin says she's not interested in dating Morris-like men or where men show an interest and she ignores them and goes straight for strike, like right here. Just pointing it out. Mm, I love that. But when she does check her phone, she has seven missed calls from strike. (laughs) I like that he knows that she's working and probably can't answer, but he's just so excited to tell her his news. (laughs) And she's the only person he wants to tell. So just keep calling her. He doesn't want to text it either. He wants to hear her voice when he tells her too. You know, he does. It's really cute. And when she finally answers, it says he sounds elated (laughs) and she can hear him pacing. and, And it says Robin is so jubilant that she began to walk down the street again, purely to use the energy now surging through her. You're brilliant. 
I know, said Strike with a trace of smugness. So we're going to Skegness tomorrow. Road trip. Well, I don't know. How far is London from Skegness? Uh, I checked on Google Maps and it says it's usually between three and four and a half hours from Earl's Court to Skegness. That's a long time in the car, especially because they drive home too. Yeah, it really is. You know what? They should have just stayed in Skegness overnight. Oh, yeah. Maybe played some like fairground games to pass the time. Maybe someone could win a stuffed donkey for his future wife. <laughs> Maybe there'd be only one bed left at the hotel. Oh, no. I don't know. I'm just throwing out ideas here. I also love that he's smug here. It's just really cute when he's smug because he has every right to be, but he's about to be super overshadowed. It's so good. Strike, I don't want to upstage you or anything, she said, failing to suppress <laughs> the note of triumph in her voice because finding Douthwaite's incredible, but I think you ought to know. You're going to be allowed to interview Dennis Creed in Broadmoor on September the 19th. Oh, absolutely fantastic. The fact he's so proud of himself that he forgets she's even got news to impart. So he yeah. has a polite inquiry and she pulls out two amazing achievements that she's been working on for ages, you know, finally cracking the shifty case and getting an interview with Creed. I'm just so proud of her. She does totally upstage him. And I'm guessing he loves it. You mentioned the polite inquiry. I like that, yeah. that that was, oh shit, yeah, said Strike politely. <laughs> so <laughs> funny. That's his polite inquiry. Oh, oh shit, shit. Yeah. yeah. How'd it go? <laughs> I mean, that's polite. It is. It's just funny. Yeah, it is funny. <laughs> this whole bit of serendipity that they have here with Strike finding Douthway because of Pat's music and Robin getting the confirmation email about Creed and having luck with Gemma. It kind of reminds me of the end of chapter 43, where Robin had had no luck finding Satchel for so long. And it's only after she and Strike make up that she's able to find him. Oh, yeah. So now here, Morris is gone. There's peace and friendliness between Strike and Pat. Strike and Robin were able to see each other for the first time in a few weeks. Everything is cohesive with the team. And like Dr. Gupta said, that's when they're most successful. It is kind of insane that they basically get the exact three big breaks that Strike wanted within like 24 hours of yeah. him manifesting it. Well, he put it on his vision board. He's read the secret. He knows how to get <laughs> what he wants. They find Dothwaite, they get an interview with Creed, and Gloria reaches out all by the next afternoon. Like that's a sign <laughs> from the universe that they're doing good. What a great chapter though. The only thing about it that doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy is, you know, the Morris and Shifty stuff, but yeah. I have more feelings coming up in the next two chapters too. So no, really? Are you surprised? So surprised. Yeah. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> so chapter 64. Yes. They go to Skegness and interview Douthwaite. Nice. The epigraph, his hand did quake and tremble like a leaf of aspen green and troubled blood through his face was seen to come and go with tidings from the heart as it a running messenger had been. Mm. There it is. It's the title the of title. the book. It's all about Douthwaite. He appears nervous. The epigraph uses the title phrase, troubled blood, as referring to blushing. The blushing face and shaky hands give a lot away and strike senses that Douthwaite is withholding information. And the information he's withholding is literally the murderer. The use of the title of the book means it's important information that his blush is giving away, right? Pay attention yes. to it. Did any of us pay attention to it the first time around? No. No, of course not. Of course not. But again, I mean, all of this important stuff is hidden with other things. Yeah. So. Yeah. She's tricksy. I'm going to do better next book, which is a complete lie. I'm not. The chapter starts on such a high note. 
They beamed at each other. For a moment, Robin thought she saw the idea of hugging her cross Strike's mind, Aww. but instead he held out his hand and shook hers. Aww. It reminds me of the ending of Silkworm. Yes. The idea of a hug hovered briefly in the air, but she held out her hand with mock blokiness and he shook it. And then? And then he kissed it? Yes. So are you saying Robin should have kissed his hand here? I mean, someone should have kissed something. I'm not that picky at this <laughs> point. It's been five years, right? I For agree. God's yeah. sake, anything. But yes, that would have actually been particularly cute. Yeah, we need like a hand kiss 2.0. Yes, one of my requests. Funny you say that because something in my book six predictions notes has something to do mm. with that. Ooh. This part is funny. It's when Strike notices Robin's scarf and says that she probably won't need it because it's a hot day. Mm. I only want to point this out here. I have some more thoughts on it later in the next chapter, but I just want to put a pin in it, put a pin in that. Sure. Yeah. But what they actually talk about is he brings up the email regarding Creed. He's astonished that Robin pulled this off, but he also says, other than that, I won't lie. I'm feeling the pressure. I too would be feeling the pressure. Yeah. It's nice that he's feeling the pressure because he doesn't want to disappoint a family who's been disappointed so many times. Yeah. It's not a pressure of looking bad or not succeeding in a case. It's disappointing someone who's been hurt. One of the conditions placed by the authorities is that he can never talk to the press about it, <laughs> which he obviously agrees and he probably considers a perk. Yeah. But yeah, it makes him feeling the pressure so much nicer because you know he's not worried that the whole country is gonna know if he messes up. It, it's only going to matter to one man and he doesn't want to let that man down. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I agree. It's just more of him doing the right things for the right reasons. Yeah, I agree. As they're talking out their plan for Douthwaite, Strike brings up how women have a tendency to disappear around him. I don't particularly like Douthwaite because him keeping the truth hidden for so long is really hard for me to get over. But Janice caused him so much chaos and disruption and loss in his life. I guess I just want to acknowledge that he is one of her victims as well. Yeah. I kind of wonder if him coming clean at the time would have resulted in Janice facing justice or if she'd have gotten off because there wasn't any solid evidence that she'd done it. There was no physical evidence that she was the murderer. All he had was his testimony that he and Margot both thought Janice might have been poisoning him. So that would have given the Talbot the motive, but it wouldn't have gotten him any close to finding Margot's body, would it? If Janice had just kept lying, which we know she's good at, maybe she would have gotten off. It's something we'll never know, mm. but I think even now it's a pretty circumstantial case. Yeah. I mean, besides her confession. So I think it would have been dangerous given Talbot, mm -hmm. but any investigation has to start somewhere. So maybe there would have been more evidence because they could have found the drugs that she claimed were Brenner's on her or in her house. Mm -hmm. And they could have gotten Brenner to admit the truth. They could have tested Kevin and asked him questions. Mm -hmm. Janice even admits that she didn't think she'd get away with it. So I'm not even sure if she would have denied it mm. if confronted. I think the biggest difference is a competent investigator. Yeah. Not that they wouldn't have been able to make a case against her mm. or wouldn't have been able to find evidence. Yeah. I think it's more likely that she would have gotten away with it because of Talbot. Yeah, that's a good point. But then, you know, once Lawson took over, it's totally possible. Mm -hmm. But we'll never know, as you said. I do want to mention the Skegness location page on Strike Fans. It's probably the longest because we spent two entire chapters there. I think my favorite detail was the palm reader door that they find in the next chapter. Mm. Because I kind of assumed that she placed this there to go with the theme. So when I found it and it's actually real, it was really exciting. 
I don't know if that's just a happy coincidence or did she look for something like that when choosing where where they'd go? Oh, that's an interesting question. I would love to know more about how she chooses locations and how she does her research. I think it would be really interesting. Add it to the list. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe she visited a few places and that was part of what made her decide on Skegness. Let me just call her up. Yeah. Hey, Joe. Question. Can you please tell us? (laughs) By the way, here are our demands. (laughs) Here's another mention of the scarf. Robin gets out of the car and she wraps it around her neck and says, told you. She said to the mystified strike to to whom the day felt unequivocally hot, not for the first time wondering what it was about women and their bizarre ability to feel non-existent chills. It makes me laugh because I've seen this joke so many times, but it's totally a thing with my husband too. Mm -hmm. Why are you always cold? Because it's cold. Well, I mean, it's been studied. Women are biologically generally more sensitive to cold temperatures, right? So we, our bodies produce less heat than men's do in general. Yeah, strike. Strike. I'm still not ready to make my full point about this. I just find it funny. I do find it funny too. I'm sticking my pin back in. Okay. They find a spot to sit down and watch and strike calls the allergist while Robin goes to the bathroom and orders them tea. It says that her hands were still damp because she didn't dry them properly since she was in such a hurry to get back to strike, which I'm pretty sure she does the exact same thing in Lethal White. Yeah, uh, she does it when they're in the pub with the beer garden after they do their group Mm -hmm. interview with the chisels. And now that you mention it, actually, these two scenes feel really similar to me. The whole bit in Lethal White that parallels this one. So they have two sort of chaotic interviews, followed by Strike and Robin having a meal together in the sunshine and each feeling so happy just because they're in each other's company, right? But also they're different. Well, it's different because Matthew's no longer a barrier. Yeah. So this one's even happier than before. Happier and they're allowed to be more emotionally open with each other now. Oh, I like that. So anyway, they see Douthwaite and he goes into the Allardis and they follow him. And just a side note, there are purple petunias outside. And I looked them up and it says they represent fantasy, charm, and mystery. And I think that fits Douthwaite pretty well. He was Janice's fantasy, I guess. And in a way, he creates new fantasies by changing his name. He's apparently charming if you listen to Donna's complaints about him as a husband. And he's definitely a mystery because she doesn't know who he is really. And he also holds the key to this mystery as well. So I thought that was interesting. That's some good symbolism. Is it stretching to say that in addition to all the stuff you mentioned, there's also a sort of connotation of unpleasantness because of Petunia Dursley? Like I get the feeling it's not Rowling's favorite flower. Yeah, probably not. I I mean, I can't hear the word Petunia without thinking of her. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. Yeah. (laughs) Might be a bit of a stretch though. Well, that's okay. They go in and introduce themselves saying that they want to talk to Douthway. And I just love how instantly furious Donna is. There's no, are you sure you have the right person? It's just instantly, what have you done? (laughs) Yeah, she seems very ready to believe that her husband has uh, done something. I mean, it doesn't seem like they have a very good marriage. But yeah, that that is a bit funny. (laughs) What have you done? The sort of reaction. Before we get to this interview, though, with Douthwaite and any potential clues about the case, I want to stop and point something out that's a very small detail, but I think it's an important detail. I'm really excited for this. I know I'm crossing into strike six predictions here, but there's no way that I can just pass this up when it's right here in front of us. So when it comes to Swan references in the books, my theory is that she's been using swans to tell us what is going on or coming up with Cormoran and Robin's personal relationship. Obviously, there's some connection with Leda and the swan as well, but for this, I'm going to focus on this side of it. 
There are some mentions of swans in the first three books, but I'm going to start with Lethal White because I think it's the most relevant and the most interesting. So obviously in the prologue for Lethal White, we have the two swans that will not come together for that perfect wedding photo. They only start to move towards each other when Matthew walks away. I'm going to argue that this is kind of an overall telling of Lethal White. Shrike and Robin are very separated in Lethal White because of Matthew, because she stayed married. They rekindle their friendship a little with the new case, but it's only when she leaves Matthew that they have that heart to heart at the race course and start having some somewhat honest conversations. And they're interrupted that time, except it was by Tegan Butcher. Damn it, Tegan. (laughs) The other swan that is referenced throughout Letha White is the single swan on top of the White Swan Pub near Robin and Matthew's home. It says that it reminds Robin every time she passes it of her calamitous wedding day. And it's when she passes that swan after leaving Matthew is when she begins to cry. I think that this is representing how alone Robin feels for a good part of this book. And that swan being up high and kind of away and separated from everything, watching everything pass by, it feels very lonely to me and very much how I imagine Robin felt. And then the last reference in Lethal White is at the very end of the book in the epilogue. Strike and Robin are walking down the street when they pass Swan House. On the front door, there are two swans facing each other. So I think that this was telling us what was to come in Troubled Blood with them inching closer together and becoming true partners and best friends. But here we have another reference to swans almost at the end of this book, and it's probably my favorite. Kirsty, who is Donna's daughter, had arranged kissing swan towels on the bed where Strike and Robin sit down together to interview Douthwaite. I know where you're going with this. So if I'm right that this is a sign of what's to come, based on these swans, one of my book six predictions is that we will get an on-purpose kiss. I'm not going to go too far with the prediction and talk about the fact that the kissing swans are on a bed because I can only let myself hope for so much, but they are on a bed. They are on a bed, which has clean sheets, I assume. I hope. (laughs) There are some swan references in the first three books. So in Cuckoo's Calling, there's one when Cormoran's walking down the street alone, and it says a single swan bobbed along the Thames beside the far bank. I think it's just mirroring Strike being alone here. And is it a lone wolf situation or is it just setting this up that swans represent them? I can't believe it, but I think it might be setting it up that early, which is mind blowing. Oh, I definitely believe that of her. Mm -hmm. I've been reading Harry Potter and sometimes I find things that I'm just like, I can't believe that was in there that early. Yeah, absolutely. The other reference in Cuckoo's Calling is talking about the picture that Lula and Kiara took where they're both wearing wings. Mm -hmm. And it describes Kiara's wings as swan-like. And if we jump to Silkworm, it also describes Charlotte's neck as swan-like. What I'm thinking is it could possibly be a romantic connection with Kiara and Charlotte, where they're both described as swan-like, but Robin is the true swan, the true soulmate, kind of like the true two of cups. I mean, it's insane, but I love it. Thank you. I'm 100% on board. There is one swan mention in Career of Evil, but it's just the lyrics to the Blue Oyster Cult song. So I think that's more of a later thing. I don't think it really connects to this. Mm-hmm. But yes, I do think that the swans are telling us what's coming up with them. And I think that the kissing swans means we'll get a kiss. Well, I yeah. hope you're right. I hope I'm right too. I'm on board with this theory. Absolutely. I was wondering when you put this forth, so you, the swans are on a bed. I I was wondering if somehow the name of their room they're in could be a clue. 
not as good a clue, but it is mentioned specifically by Strike. He'd hoped Loch Nagar might be on the first floor, but he was disappointed. It lay, as the name might have suggested, right at the top of the B&B and faced out of the rear of the building. So I looked up Loch Nagar, and it's apparently a mountain in, in Scotland that's popular for hill walkers, and it's located on the Royal Balmoral Estate, which is the Queen's vacation home, right? So I know it's not very realistic that Strike in particular will be climbing any Scottish mountains anytime soon. But I, from two hints in this book, when the woman at the funeral asks if Strike has done any work for the royals, and at the end where Polworth asks him, you know, unless you're busy with the Queen, I've been thinking those are hints that they might end up doing a job for the royals. Or maybe they'll have to go up to Scotland in the next book, which I would love. I guess I kind of took this to mean he has to kind of climb this mountain. I was kind of applying it to the case. Oh, right. Just to reflect the work that has to be putting into finding the answer. He has to climb the mountain, so to speak, in order to find it. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm just desperate. Lord Byron actually wrote a poem about Lochnagar, Lochnigar which is about basically remembering your roots and your ancestry and the deeds of your forefathers, even though um, you're far away from where they were and where you walked as a child. I know that you're going to talk in a little bit about his roots to Cornwall. So yeah, I'm sorry, though. It also just you said Lord Byron, and it just makes me think of Thomas from Ghosts. <laughs> Been watching too much of it. Byron, damn your eyes. <laughs> There's never such thing as too much ghosts. No, I agree. Sorry. It's the best show. This is a bit of a derail. Anyway, back to the, the actual chapter. Yeah. When Donna tells Strike and Robin to sit down on the bed with the kissing swan towels, just to say it mm -hmm. again, it says, having nowhere else to do it, both sat down on the end of the double bed. Ooh. The double bed strike has one of those, just saying. This got a highlight in the book for me just because it specifically points out that they only sat on the bed together because there was nowhere else to sit. I'm pretty certain that if one of them had had the option, they would have sat somewhere else because, you know. Yeah, they're still fighting destiny. It could be kind of symbolic. If we're having the bed represent intimacy and vulnerability, then it's kind of like they have no other option but to go to that place in their relationship. I have to give it to Donna, though. I'd be terrified to learn that my husband had changed his name twice and had a connection to three missing or dead women. Oh, God, yeah. But at the same time, I was kind of with strike on this and annoyed that they couldn't actually question him. Yeah. Because of her constant interruptions. If I was Donna, I'd have been out that door so fast yeah. that you wouldn't be able to see the dust in my wake. I am not becoming that dude's fourth victim. Yeah, I mean, even though we know he's innocent, you don't want to take that no, risk. I'm not taking that risk. But let's talk about the interview and some of the clues that are in here. Throughout this entire interview, any time Strike mentions Janice, Donna interrupts. It's really genius. It's a genius writing strategy because we don't ever get to hear his answer. Donna thinks that she's hounding him or catching him in a lie, but what she's doing is actually helping him avoid the thing he doesn't want to answer. And we're distracted from what's important by Donna over here and all the fuss she's making, and we don't think about it. But there's also some interesting things in how Douthway even reacts to Janice and hearing her name. When Douthwaite explains that Joanna Hammond's husband had beat him, Strike says, and your neighbor, Janice, the nurse, looked after. Straight off with the neighbor, were you, Steve? Said Donna with a hollow laugh. Get the nurse to mop you up. It wasn't like that, said Douthwaite with a surprising vehemence. That's surprising vehemence. He wants to separate himself from Janice. And we don't really get to hear about it because of her interruption. Yeah, we think the vehemence is him trying to defend his own character. 
to her, but it's not. Another one that shows his reaction. Jana says she advised you to see a doctor about your symptom. She never told me to go to the doctor, snapped Douthwaite. (laughs) Of course, Janice never wanted him to go to the doctor. Of course. Douthwaite knows why. So that's why he's like, she didn't want to. She's the one poisoning me. You're so right that the clues are all there. I'm just so in awe of Rowling's writing and how good she is at misdirection. He continues to say that he went on his own to the doctor because of the headaches and the mostly headaches. So he doesn't say the other thing. Yeah, probably some kind of gastric upset. And Strike, having already noticed these coincidences, would have been on that so fast. I think it's obvious, though, that Douthwaite knows whatever he was about to say was caused by Janice. And that's why he didn't want to say it. Yeah, I think so. The next one is really good. When Strike asks if he sent the chocolates, Douthwaite denies and says, if someone sent her chocolates, maybe you should find them but it wasn't me. This is interesting because we know that Douthwaite knows that Janice was poisoning him. I don't know if he knew about the chocolates and that they were poisoned, but it seems like he's making the connection and trying to tell them where to look without actually saying so. Yeah, I'm guessing he was questioned about those chocolates at the time since everyone else they've spoken to thought that he was the one sending them, right? So I'm wondering if the memory of these chocolates has sort of been eating away at him for 40 years, wondering if they were what killed Margot. You know what I've just realized is that in the book a few times they've talked about the neighbor or the landlord or the wife who didn't know, who could have no idea. In this case, we have someone right there who did know, but just ran away. I mean, I don't blame someone for moving away from a serial killer, but cowardice instead of obliviousness. I do have to say I'm gaining a little bit of sympathy for him as the chapter goes on because he knew what Janice did to him. He knew that Janice was there when Julie died. He had to be scared of her. Yeah. Right. I mean, he might not have admitted to himself that Janice had something to do with Julie's death, but I think deep down he knew that it was too much of a coincidence and that he's been afraid of her this whole time. Strike abruptly ends the interview because it's impossible with Donna, but I love that he gives him his card and says, it's never too late. Mm -hmm. For the second time in this chapter, it mentions Douthwaite's hourglass tattoo. I was going to ask you both what you thought this meant earlier, but I, I think it kind of answers the question here that his time is up. There's no more running away from this. Oh, that's a really good point. I like that. That was a nice catch. Very nice catch. Douthwaite wants to know who else Strike and Robin have talked to. And again, when Strike mentions Janice, Donna cuts him off and we don't get to see a real response from Douthwaite, which in itself is such a fun clue. Donna distracting from Janice every single time is so fun. Looking back and realizing how many times the subject of Janice is just abruptly stopped. Yeah. It's genius. I love it. Mm Mm-hmm. I also love how we get to see Robin use her empathy and her own experience as a way to connect with the people that they meet, in this case, Donna. Um, She's not doing it in a manipulative way to get answers from her. She's sincere and it makes her a better detective. I always love having these two work a case together, but they really are at their best when they're together. It's so true. She's really lovely. I feel quite bad for Donna when she almost faints. Like a horrible thing to find out that your husband's been lying to you about so many things for so long. I mean, to be fair, it's not what she's thinking it is. He's not a murderer. And I do feel bad for him that it's all because of Janice, Mm -hmm. but it's got to be really hard for Donna. Yeah. Having just said that about Robin's empathy, I have to admit that I'm a little bit like strike in this situation. And I really just wanted Donna to let them speak. 
which is why the beginning of the next chapter makes me laugh so much. Speaking of the next chapter, chapter 65, which is Strike and Robin just hanging out in Skegness, aka the cutest shit that has ever crossed my eyeballs, ever. I love this chapter. Before reading this book, I had never heard of Skegness. <laughs> I've heard from a couple people that it's not great. I still really want to go there. I'm sorry. It's clearly the most romantic place in the <laughs> entire world. So <laughs> I too want to go there. The epigraph to chapter 65. Like as a ship that through the ocean wide directs her course unto one certain cost, is met of many a counter wind and tide with which her winged speed is let and crossed, and she herself in stormy surges tossed, yet making many a board and many a bay, still winneth way, nay hath her compass lost. Right so it fares with me in this long way, whose course is often stayed, yet never is astray. It really feels like the culmination of everything in this book, right? Yeah. I think what it's saying is that no matter how many storms they go through, no matter how many times they're thrown off course or lose their bearings, if they stay the course, they'll find their way. Whether it's talking about the case or their personal relationship is up for interpretation. I like to think it's both. Agreed on all counts. And also, absolutely, it's about both. So many of the epigraphs in this book are about both. That's why the epigraphs are so good. Yeah. Start of this chapter is also great. I'm hungry, Strike announced. Me too, Coram. Always. I knew we were in for a great chapter with just those two words. Yeah. <laughs> I will never yeah. not love his love of food. I know. It's so funny. Yeah. Three things you can always count on. Death, taxes, and Strike being hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll also never not love his sense of humor because it really made me laugh when Robin was saying she was seriously worried that Donna was going to pass out and Strike says, wish she had. <laughs> <laughs> well, but see, if Donna had passed out, they'd have solved the case. And they'd have been so distracted by solving the case that we wouldn't have had this adorable scene. I suppose. Yeah. As they're walking, someone inside Funland yells, White 7 and 4, 74. I just thought it's referencing the year they're investigating. Okay, see, I have a theory that 74 is about what comes immediately after 73, as in chapter 73. As in okay. 74 is them at the Ritz. It's the unwritten, unincluded chapter. I think this is probably a bingo announcement. I looked at pictures of Funland. And it seemed like they had a bingo machine where each letter is color-coded. So white is G. But the thing is, 74 is too high a number to be under G. 74 should be under O, which is green. So it's deliberately incorrect. So what does the white mean? Well, swans. Okay. Swans are white. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Maybe Luca Ricci shows up with cocaine or... <laughs> no, no one is showing up at the Ritz. <laughs> There is that painting of Lady there is the, the swan. mural, yeah, yeah, of Lady and the Swan. I'm not sure I buy it yet. Yes, but this is the craziest of my theories. I know. Are you sure? Absolutely. This is the nutty one, but I feel like it's real and that something happens in the chapter that doesn't exist yet. I really want to see the writ. I'm about to start adding seven and four together, like in numerology conspiracy. So. Someone we should move on. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, move on. Let's move on. Okay. One more Douthwaite thing. Strike says, but my gut feeling is that Douthwaite thinks whatever happened between them at that last appointment is relevant to her disappearance. 
which he says right after they say 74. So I think it could just be the year. But I'm just saying. It's kind of funny that he's talking about his gut feeling when he always says, oh yeah, don't trust your gut feeling. Yeah, because his is usually always spot on, right? Mm-hmm. That case stuff is interesting and all, but let's move on to all this adorable stuff that happens. It's the reason we're, we're here. And this is. entire chapter is just wall to wall adorable. It's just so much cute shit. It starts with her talking about the donkeys. <laughs> Robin just kind of throws this out casually that she was always more interested in the donkeys as a child. And he asks about it and says he's grinning as he does. I just think he really likes learning these little things about her. I said this in my answer to Virginia's question, but something I'm looking forward to hopefully in future books is the two of them learning more about each other as younger people or before they met. He just seems to enjoy this little fact and I could see Robin also enjoying hearing these things about him. Yeah, I love that. I love that they want to get to know each other better. And speaking of things I love, the next quote just melts me into a complete puddle. After a minute or so, looking forward to his chips and enjoying the feeling of sun on his back, Strike became aware that he was still watching Robin and fixed his eyes instead on a fluttering mass just above him. (sighs) Seriously gives me secondhand butterflies. (laughs) Yeah, he does it. This is the first of two times. Especially coming so soon after he looked away deliberately Mm -hmm. in the last chapter. Yeah, because he usually doesn't allow himself to look at her Mm -hmm. like this, I guess. But I imagine that his guard is down, his wall is down, and he doesn't even realize he's doing it, which is the sweetest part for me. It's almost like his heart took over for a moment instead of his brain. And a whole minute or so. Just staring. Yeah. Watching her cue for the chips. It's adorable. Watching her trying to find her wallet. Oh, it's so cute. Imagine if she had turned around before he realized. I can't wait to get to the point where he doesn't have to look away anymore. That he can just stare at her and it'll be fine. Like she'll turn around and see him staring. He just does that sort of like grin and eyebrow wiggle. Like, yeah, I'm staring. What about it? I want that for them. Or something like take a picture strike at a last. I want him to take a picture. He doesn't have a picture of her probably. She should send him a selfie. They need selfies together. I would like a candid of them together where they don't know if someone took a picture of them and they're just like beaming at each other. Elsa, get on it. Yeah, get on that Elsa. Come on. How have you not done that already? Anyway. Next up in things that make me smile, the whole exchange about mushy peas. (laughs) Oh, mushy peas. Soft southerner you are, she said, and Strike laughed. Don't ever let Polworth hear you say that, he said, breaking off a bit of fish with his fingers, dipping it in ketchup and eating it. He then, without warning, broke into song. Okay, I'm not disturbed by the mushy peas at all. I'd eat Uh them. I do not like that he's dipping his fish in ketchup. I find it gross is that weird yeah i've done that you've done that god yeah yeah i don't think it's weird i prefer tartar sauce but i don't think it's it might not be weird it might be common but it's still gross and neither are mushy peas i would eat mushy peas i like peas i wish clara was here (laughs) because they sound like they are definitely the product of the devil's testicles i would try them i i'd eat them I just can't with how cute these two are. And I love happy singing strike. Yeah. I just want to shake them both and say like, see, look at you two together. You're happy. You're enjoying each other's company. Just, it's so obvious. I can only think of one other time in these books that he's sung. Oh, I know what that is. Yeah. In Cuckoo's Calling, he was in such a good mood. He he was rapping. D.B. Mac. Yeah. D.B. Mac when he came back to the office and then Robin felt really bad that she had to break the news about Charlotte because he was in such a good mood. I don't know where I'm going with this parallel, but we've come full circle. We started there and now we're here. 
the amount of times in this chapter, I wish I would have thought to count it, but that says that they laughed or smiled or grinned. It's a lot. They make each other so happy and it makes me so happy. The mood changes a bit because Robin starts doing that thinking thing. Robin felt a strange mixture of contentment and melancholy. The possibility of an unknown development in the Bamborough case, the delicious chips and peas, the companionship of Strike and the sunshine were all cheering, but she was also remembering chasing along the out-of-sight beach as a small child trying to outrun her brother Stephen to reach the donkeys and have first pick. Why did the memory of innocence sting so much as you got older? Why did the memory of the child who thought she was invulnerable, who'd never known cruelty, give her more pain than pleasure? It's a little bit of melancholiness in the middle of the such a happy chapter. Yeah, although the part where it says the companionship of Strike and the sunshine were all cheering, it reminds me of earlier when they're at the Bar Italia, I think, mm-hmm. and Strike thinks almost the exact same thing, that Robin's company and sunshine. Yeah, I don't know. I, I does the memory sting her? Well, because she knows what happened to that little girl. And even though she's at a place now where she's healed, there's still, yeah. you know... You can never get back to that innocence, to that happiness. It's gone forever. Time continues to march on. Yeah. It makes her think of Annabelle Mm -hmm. and taking her to Skegness for her first donkey ride, but doubted that Stephen and Jenny would think it was a desirable weekend destination. Mm -hmm. Maybe she'll take her own daughter there one day. I don't think, no, if Stephen would be as opposed as she thinks, because he must have fond memories of Skegness as well. You know, maybe he'd actually be happy for Robin to take Annabelle there. I wonder why she thinks that. And maybe it's because their aunt moved away. So she'd think maybe it's not worth the drive anymore, but she might be able to take her there. Yeah, why not? Why not? And even though it's a little bit sad, the next moment is great when he talks about how things can always get worse and tells her about the other man that was in the hospital with him. You can really see that barrier coming down in this chapter. It makes me feel really hopeful. Really hopeful about what they're going to be like in the next book, mostly. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They're talking about people changing. And Robin says, I don't know. I think I've changed, said Robin, then felt embarrassed to have said it out loud. Strike looked at her without smiling for the space it took him to chew and swallow a chip, then said, yeah, but you're exceptional, aren't you? And before Robin had time for anything other than a slight blush, Strike said, are you not finishing those chips? Okay, we need to break this down and dissect it. Yeah, it's so great. What are your thoughts on her feeling embarrassed that she had said that out loud? I thought she was maybe embarrassed because she she thought it it could have been a silly thing to say. She's insecure about even saying it, you know? But clearly it's not because, as we see, she is exceptional. And uh, time for more secondhand butterflies. When he looks at her seriously for as long as it took him to chew and swallow, that might not seem like a long time, but it's a long time for that. I so wish that we could see inside of his brain. What was he thinking as he was just chewing his chip and looking at her and deciding what to say? Oh, I feel like I'm blushing now. Oh, right. I remember discussing this with Clara months ago, and I hope I'm not going to butcher it here, but I remember her saying that he is very much testing the waters here. He's flirting a little and seeing what her reaction is. And when he gets the reaction that he wants her blushing, he immediately pulls back and kind of gives her an out by asking her about her chips. I love the idea of him pushing boundaries and testing those waters. 
but I also like that he doesn't push too far. Yes. I love that. And I'm excited to see him kind of continue to push those, especially in the next book. I cannot wait because we know he's going to do it. I am desperate to see flirty strike, hinting strike. Yes. Yes. Please. Put it on the list. I need it so much. (laughs) Uh Yeah. I'm going to put that on the list like 10 times, please. Yeah. (laughs) yes yeah flirty strike and like openly thirsty robin yes absolutely and she is exceptional she is exceptionally funny okay her response to him taking the rest of the chips is i'll look up that one weird tip to lose belly fat (laughs) she is hilarious I love her. When she roasts Strike, it's my favorite thing. (laughs) She really is exceptional and she should be proud of it. Honestly, if you look at the Robin in this book at this particular moment and the Robin that Strike met, they're the same woman, but God, she's come miles from where she was before. She's grown so much. The same for him. He's exceptional too. Talking about changing, he does a lot of that himself. Yeah. And he's also funny because when we get this introduction to Michelle, (laughs) (laughs) he cracks me up. Already cleared the first hurdle. Doubt she's ever sent a dick pic. (laughs) (laughs) They're so perfect for each other. They are. But they're really on a roll. I mean, I know we've already talked about this, but they interviewed Douthwaite. They have an upcoming interview with Creed. They just got a new potential subcontractor. And now Gloria Conti has finally responded. I mean, this is a good day for them. In so many ways. They should really go on dates to the seaside more often, shouldn't they? Really they really should. <laughs> like an actual date too. That would be great. Great yeah. things happen when they're together. It's also funny when they talk about how Anna probably doesn't want the investigation over, but for sanity has to stop somewhere. Mm-hmm. And Strike says, so what does that make us? <laughs> <laughs> it makes them adorable is what it makes them. Dedicated, not crazy. Dedicated. And then here's another interview, Gloria Conti, that Strike suggests they do together at the office. Again, partners. Finally, full proper partners. But I love this reflection that Robin has about how she can do this now, like where she couldn't do it before. Robin reflecting on how casually she just agreed to go to work on a Saturday evening so that she could conduct Gloria's interview with Strike. There was no angry Matthew at home anymore, furious about her committing herself to long hours, suspicious about what she and Strike were up to alone in the office in the evening. And she thought back to Matthew's refusal to look her in the eye across the table at the mediation. He changed his partner and his firm. He'd soon be a father. His life had changed, but had he. Well, Matthew isn't exceptional, is he? Well, he's an exceptional shit. (laughs) That's accurate. Speaking of exceptional people, all this talk about change is really reflecting Strike's journey in the book, too, isn't it? Because yeah. this book, for Strike, it's all about reconsidering who he thought he was and, and what he thought he wanted. Mm-hmm. So he started off the book as it opened, insisting that he's not the marrying type. But as we know where it ends up with him, you know, it's proof that he is also exceptional. I wonder if any of his thoughts when he's looking at her... We're thinking about himself as well. Oh my God. Yes. I really hope it is. He's like, oh shit, I've changed. Yeah. And looking at her is what has helped him change. So yeah, I'd like to think that that was maybe true. Oh yeah. Hitting me in the feelings with that one. Sorry. That's okay. Get back to the funny stuff. So they're walking to find cigarettes and here's where Robin points out the palm reader door. (laughs) And she says, well, you've had your chart done. Maybe I'd like mine. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was, I'm almost expecting Shrike to remember this and do it for her at some point. Although I don't know if it would be kind of an obscure callback to if we've moved on to another case, but yeah, I have a dream Christmas gift in my head that relates to this, but I don't know if anyone actually wants to hear it. That he gets her one. So listen, what a good Christmas gift it would be if he got a big framed picture with three birth charts all done up like fancy with like guilt and the three are his birthday her birthday and in the middle one that's about 10 to 9 in the morning on march 31st 2010 the moment they met i know that that's insane i don't care mostly i want this because it to do it he would have to call linda to ask for robin's exact time of birth and I would do a lot to hear that conversation. I feel like that might be a little further in the care. future, but I want it. I don't care when it happens, make it happen. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I would like some acknowledgement of the day that they met and how significant it was for both of them. Yes, I absolutely want that. It could happen in so many different ways, but I want him to acknowledge that one day when she's not expecting it. This part is so great. Oh. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Waiting to be served, Strike was seized by a sudden quixotic impulse, stimulated no doubt by the gaudy color all around him, by the sunshine and sticks of rock, the rattling playing of amusement arcades, and a stomach full of some of the best fish and chips he'd ever eaten, to buy Robin a toy donkey. He came to his senses almost before the idea had formed. What was he, a kid on a daytime date with his first girlfriend? Don't be silly, Cormoran. You are a grown-ass man on a daytime date with your future wife with his last girlfriend oh first of all i am so over them minimizing or explaining away their feelings like no more of this it's because of this other thing you know yeah second of all it's no wonder he feels like he's on a date because he's feeling all the same things he would feel if he was on a date oh stop that is too cute I know it says that he came to his senses, but I don't really believe him because he still looks when he leaves to see if there was one when he notes that there aren't any. Mm -hmm. He still wants to do it, even though. Yeah, there just weren't any donkeys. I maintain he should have gone to the fairground and tried his luck with some of the games. <laughs> he feels like a guy who can win those rigged games. Definitely. Yeah. With the strong arms is good aim. I want to talk about Strike wanting to see the sea before they leave. It said in a previous chapter that the smell of the sea was comforting to him. And I imagine that's because of his memories of being with Ted and Joan as a child and actually feeling safe and secure. It makes me think of that interview clip that JK Rowling did, and they've just recirculated it to where she says that he doesn't have any good examples of a healthy relationship. So he fears it. The first time I saw that, I kind of reacted with a, hey, what about Ted and Joan? You know, I think a lot of people did, but I really think she's speaking from Strike's perspective at the beginning of Trouble Blood or before Trouble Blood, where he's forgetting that good example because it's overshadowed by the bad ones. So I'm wondering if him being drawn to this form of comfort, especially after Joan's death, is him starting to pay attention to those good examples and finding a desire to have that himself. And he is drawn to the sea because in the beginning of the previous chapter, he turned instinctively towards it, even though he couldn't see it. And then when they were up interviewing Douthwaite on the top floor, it says that he looked out the window and caught a glimpse of it. And now here it says, at last they saw what Strike felt the need to see. Hmm. He's also probably drawn to it because it says a little later, it's like visiting Joan's grave. But as you've said a lot before Poole's Joan's passing, 
has brought some change for him. And I think it all kind of ties together for me. Yeah, I think so. I agree. I think that his growth in this book has allowed him to connect emotionally with these happy childhood memories where maybe he hadn't allowed himself to before out of guilt um, of that sense that to be happy with Ted and Joan in Cornwall was somehow betraying his mother. Yeah. So he's he sort of reconciled that a bit in this book, hasn't he? Yeah. So, I mean, in the same chapter, he's singing Cornish songs and he's acknowledging that he's not a soft southerner because he's a Cornishman and they're anything but soft, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. Him reconciling the feeling that he's betraying Leda and embracing Joan is allowing him to also embrace Ted and Joan's example, which I think he's ignored. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what she meant when she said that. I agree. And as they're walking to the sea, he sings more of the song and they both say how they love London. I need to reread the article from last month's Robert Galbraith newsletter, but it reminds me of that and how they both found themselves in London and find themselves in each other. I feel like there's something there about them both saying they love London where, you know, it's the place where they've made their lives and where their future together is. Oh, first of all, my feelings, how dare you? Second of all, remember how when we first meet Robin in the very first chapter, it says that she hadn't yet warmed to London, that she wasn't comfortable there. It really wasn't until she met Strike and she saw his London, the sort of real London, the detective's London, rather than Matthew's version of it, that she started to fall in love with it, right? How dare you? (laughs) It's revenge. Yeah. Your feelings, take that. (laughs) Uh, Taking it out of the feelings, hopefully. We get a mention of the scarf again. Far out at sea, spoiling the horizon, an army of tall white wind turbines. And while Strike personally enjoyed the chill breeze coming off the wide ocean, he understood at last why Robin had brought a scarf. I'm sorry, you think I'm taking you out of the emotion right now? Because I'm about to dive into it. Oh, no. Oh, I played myself. Okay, we can finally talk about the scarf thing. Back in an earlier chapter where Strike is alone at home on his birthday, and he's making all of these excuses for why he shouldn't want to be with Robin or why it's a bad idea. This ridiculous idea of how women being cold is one of those excuses, you know, and he likes having the window open and he likes his flat cold. He's trying to make a case for why he should be alone. And it's a really stupid argument. Yeah, the stupidest. The stupidest. So I think this is significant because they've made their way down to the sea, which I'm arguing is also him being drawn to Ted and Joan's example. And even though he enjoys the chill, he acknowledges the breeze and understands why she brought the scarf. I see this as almost a moment where he's letting go of that silly excuse and therefore maybe all of the silly excuses and of the things that don't actually matter and actually embracing it and accepting that even though there are things about them that are different, like she might say, I'm a little cold. Can we close the window? It's not so bad after all. He could probably live with that if it means being happy with the woman he loves. Oh my God. RIP me. I don't know if I'm right, but I think that there is something there with the scarf thing because it's mentioned so many times. It's mentioned so many times. And then he also thinks about women being cold a couple more times before this. So yeah, I just, I love it. I love it. He can also buy some nice throw blankets for her to sort of have around his apartment. I don't know. She could also cuddle up to someone. I don't know. Cuddle up to like a big bear of a man. Maybe. I don't know. Has a lot of body heat. Mm-hmm. Whatever. You know, if she wants, I guess. I'm not going to think about that at all. No, definitely not. No. Mm-mm. 
Strike thinks about Joan and how she'd given them all a grave to visit every time they visited the coast. Cornish born, Cornish bred, Joan had known that this need to reconnect with the sea lived in all of them. Now, every time they made their way to the coast, they paid her tribute. Lived in all of them. He's grouping himself among the Cornish bred and born here, isn't he? Yeah. In the very beginning of the book, like the opening words of the book, he's arguing with Polworth about this. He's saying, you know, he'd call himself British rather than Cornish, right? He might not identify himself first as Cornish even now, but I do think that this shows he's grown to appreciate that side of himself and his roots in Cornwall much more than he did at the opening of the book. His divided loyalties that he had are starting to heal and he's sort of becoming a single integrated whole. It kind of makes me think about what you've said before when talking about Charlotte and Matthew and their relationships and Mm -hmm. accepting the bad while acknowledging the good. Yeah. Both Strike and Robin are learning who they really are and what they really want. And part of that means accepting all those parts of you that make you who you are. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm having so many feelings about these two. As per usual. Speaking of feelings, I'm glad that Strike told Robin about the pink roses here. Oh, me too. I just like that he's telling her what's on his mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think before he would keep that stuff to himself and letting her know he's thinking of Joan. And it's a little reminder to us and to Robin how much it meant to him that she did that. It's almost like that talking thing oh, is a weird. good thing to yeah. do. So weird. Oh, I cannot wait until the next book to see how they're how they are so. continuing to talk. Oh, and this part's so funny. If the agency ever fails, said Strike, as they both turned away from the sea. You could come back to Skegness and set yourself up as a clairvoyant (laughs) bit niche, said Robin, as they walked back towards the car park, guessing dead people's favorite flowers. No donkeys, said Strike, glancing back over his shoulder at the beach. Never mind, said Robin kindly. I think you'd have been a bit heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Was he going to suggest that they rode the donkey? (laughs) I think, and I love this, that he was just trying to find them for her, you know, or at least looking to see if they're there so that he could point them out to her because he knew it would make her happy. Yeah. This is the cutest thing I've ever read with my own two so cute. eyeballs. And Robin just roasting him at the end again, <laughs> gently, lovingly roasting him is my favorite thing. And it will always be my favorite thing because she is such a sass and it never fails to make me laugh. Never. Again, I can't wait to see it more when it's a little, a little more flirty, maybe. Oh, fl- oh. wow. RIP me once more. <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> I just love this chapter so much. It's one of my favorites in the whole book. And I think one of the reasons is I love seeing them have these little conversations about life and joke around and just be with each other in a way we don't normally get to see. Yeah. In Lethal White, when they're at the race course, which is also one of my favorite chapters in that book, I remember wishing I could see some of that time that they had afterwards where they're just hanging out, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like this chapter kind of satisfies that wish for me. Oh, same. I would read 1,500 pages of these two just hanging out, shooting the breeze, and I would still want more. Yep. God, that was a good chapter. It really was. It was a good set of chapters. We are really in the home stretch of fantastic stuff now yep we're coming up to the climax of the book incredible that we've gotten this far to be honest with you i'm like kind of blown away we're getting and it's so incredible that people have stuck with us and listened so thank you i hope yeah, that you're enjoying you. it as so much, much as we are and if anyone has any questions that they'd like to have us answer on air 
please feel free to tweet them at us email us yeah those are always so fun honest to god that dinner party question i love it i do too <laughs> i want more like that please yes and we are actually working on something that maybe will hopefully make that a little bit easier to do oh yes no spoilers well i am off to read the christmas pig oh have fun thank you i'm off to bed <laughs> I think that's going to be it for today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of chapters 66 through 68. If you enjoy what you've heard so far, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always email us at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files.